Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to the Parsha class. So glad to be together again. Uh, very briefly, the BRS Social Action Committee and Stand With Us Southeast invite everyone to a special program this Sunday night, Forgotten Refugees, which is an award-winning film that tells the untold story of the Jewish refugees from Arab lands, 1948 to 1960. Uh, it's a program together, as I said, with uh, Stand With Us. It's important to come to learn about this. There's a lot of talk about so-called Palestinian refugees and their right of return, and there's neglect to tell the story of the Jewish refugees who were expelled from Arab lands, and no one ever talks about their right to return anywhere. So come uh, and see this important film, Forgotten Refugees. This Sunday night, 7 p.m., there are flyers that are going around. I want to thank uh, the sponsors of this morning's Parsha class, Gladys Sherman, in honor of her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and Kara Zimmerman, in honor of the birthday of her dear sister, Susie Baker. should have a very happy birthday. And Gladys should have a lot of nachas from her family. Thank you for your sponsorship. Okay, last week's Parsha left off. Moshe Rabbeinu had been solicited, recruited, to be the catalyst of the Jewish people's salvation, their liberation from the bondage of Egypt, Moshe makes his first attempt. It's not greeted very warmly. And Moshe goes back and throws it in Hashem's face. Why in the world would you not want a good result, a good outcome? How could you orchestrate such negative consequences? And that was last week's Pasha. We pick it up, Pasha's Vaira, page 318 in the Art Scroll, Stone Chumash. And here, God resumes his conversation with Moshe. By love. Ani Hashem. God says, first of all, let me remind you of how this goes. When you challenge let me remind you, I am the omnipotent, infinite God. I am all-knowing, I am the creator of the universe, and, put simply, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. So stick with me, there's a plan. This is all by design. Nothing's gone wrong, this is intentional. Stick with me. Ani Hashem. And if you don't believe me that there's a plan and a design, that there's order to what's happening, let me remind you. I previously revealed myself to your ancestors, but I didn't tell them my name. And I forged a covenant with them to give them this land. So I know I got, I got the picture. I know the plan. It's to get the people out. It's to relieve them of their suffering and to bring them into the land that I promised. I'm the one who made the promise. I remember. And I understand your frustration and disappointment. Moshe, you think you're the only one with a heart? You're the only one with a sense of empathy? I've also heard the cries. I've also heard the scream. Don't worry. I remember the deal. I remember the promise. I remember the covenant. I remember the pledge that I'm going to take them out. And bring them. So therefore I want you now to go and I want you to deliver a message. Tell them. And here we have now the Dalad Lashonos of Geula, the four languages of redemption. Moshe, you think that I don't know what I'm doing? Let me remind you, I also have a heart and sympathy and empathy. I too remember my promise that I gave to your forefathers. I was the one with them. Let me remind you, I'm God, I'm in control. And now Moshe, here's your job. Deliver the message of Otsesi, Vitsalti, Vigaalti, Vilakahti. For what Chazal called Lishonos, the Nitziv points out, Lishonos doesn't just mean four words. 
It's four languages. Languages reflect four stages. Redemption doesn't happen in a linear way. You don't go from being enslaved to being freed overnight. It's incremental. It happens in stages. And certainly that's true for our time. This geula that we are longing and hoping is already in process and in progress. The eschalta de geula, we take three steps forward, we take a step back. We have a modern state of Israel. We're attacked by all of our enemies. We have Yerushalayim. We are attacked from the north to south. Every step we take forward, there's a step back. It's an incremental. Geula doesn't happen in a linear binary fashion. It's either there or it's not there. It happens in stages and then it says that's reflected in the Dalad Lishonos. Four languages means there are four descriptions. It's not that there's one Geula, one redemption. We have four words to describe it. And because we have four words, we get to drink four cups of wine. It's not that there's four synonyms to describe the same act of redemption. Redemption itself happens incrementally in stages. It takes time. We have a fifth word. We talked about it last year. You can listen online. What's the fifth word of redemption? Vehevesi. I will bring you into the land. Rabbi Menachem Kasher, the Torah Shlema, in his Haggadah Shlema, suggested after he saw the atrocity, in his introduction to his Sefer on Chumash, he describes the persecution, the oppression of Eastern Europe that he witnessed. But then in his Haggadah, he experienced the miracle of the modern state of Israel. And he said, it's time to introduce the fifth cup at the Seder. The fifth cup corresponding to the fifth language of the Hevesi. Because we've been brought into the land of Israel. He turned to the chief rabbinate and he asked them to declare that we add the fifth cup. They did not. We still have the fifth cup as the coast of Eliyahu. But this fifth language of the Hevesi is uh, alive in our generation. So Hashem tells Moshe, look, tell the people, I understand the plan and I feel their pain. And we're still on. But there's a, there's a design. There's a plan here. And it's going to happen incrementally. And it's going to happen in stages. And God keeps promising He's going to take them out. Mitachas what? Sivlos Mitzrayim. We have this language doubly here. In Pasuk Vav, tell the Jewish people, Vahutsesi, I'm going to remove them. Mitachas Sivlos Mitzrayim. And then at the end of the next Pasuk, Zion, I'm going to take them out. Vidatem, they'll know Kiani Hashem. How will they know that I'm Hashem? How will they know? Because I'm Motsias Chamitachas. What? Sivlos Mitzrayim. Because I'm removing them from the Sivlos Mitzrayim. So you have this double language, this double reference to Sivlos Mitzrayim. What are the Sivlos Mitzrayim? Art scroll translates it as the burdens of Egypt. God promises I will remove you from the burdens of Egypt. Salonim Rebbe and Asaf and Asiva Shalom asks a series of questions. Number one, why the double language Sivlos Mitzrayim twice? Tell the Jewish people I'm going to take them Hotsesi Sivlos Mitzrayim and Melakachti Hamotzias Chamitachas Sivlos Mitzrayim. Why twice? Number two, why you will know Viadatem Kani Hashem Lokechem Melakachti I'm going to take you Viadatem and you'll know that I took you out of Sivlos Mitzrayim. Didn't you already say in the last box that you took me out? Why didn't you say, we'll know your God then? Why only, and we'll know your God when you take us out the second time from Sivlos Mitzrayim? Third of all, Rashi tells us that at one point Hashem tells Moshe, I'm sorry, 
Paro tells Moshe, Lama Moshe Aaron Go back to your homes, to your sivlos. Now Moshe and Aaron come from which tribe? Levi. Did Levi suffer like the others? Levi had a pass. Levi, for whatever reason, had protexia. They didn't suffer the harshness of the bondage of Egypt. So what did he mean? Go back, Moshe and Aaron, go back to your sivlos. What sivlos were they going home to? It sounds like sivlos kolel gam malachas habayis. There was a sivlos, there was a burden, there was a bondage, there was backbreaking labor that included building the pyramids and making the bricks. But there was some sivlos that also had to do with the home, that even Moshe and Aaron were going to. And based on all these questions, the Islam Rebbe develops the following, I think, incredible idea. It's worthy, I encourage you to look at it more closely another time. Islam Rebbe says, Sivlos is used twice because there are two types of bondage. There was the physical backbreaking labor, being slave labor, but then there was also the spiritual bondage of our identity being stolen, of being so immersed and so integrated and so assimilated into the Egyptian way of thinking and way of being, their culture, their ethic, their ethos. What do we say at the Haggadah? Ilu, that if Hashem had not taken us out, Says the slammer, why does it say Mishubadim? It should say Hayinu Ovdim. We would still be working. What does Mishubadim mean? So the Islam Rebbe explains that the rule, the truth of the cycle of empires, countries rise and fall, powers rise and fall, it's unlikely we'd still be slaves in Egypt. Egypt is not the empire of our time. But what would we still be? We'd be walking like an Egyptian. We'd still be Egyptians. That culture, that attitude, that religion, that philosophy, that moral decay, that moral corruption, that licentiousness, that would still be who we were had Hashem not taken us out. So there's two sets of sivlos. There's the fact that outside the home we were doing backbreaking labor, building bricks, assembling the pyramids, carrying heavy loads, doing hard work. But there was a second sivlos, which is we had forfeited our Jewish identity, what distinguishes us as a holy people. We had absorbed, we know we had sunk to the 49th level of Tumma, one more level of Tumma, we would have been unredeemable, irredeemable. That's how far we had gone down, the sivlos. And therefore... Islam Rebbe develops the idea, which we don't have time for now. I want to get through the overview of the Parsha and get to our psukim, But I really encourage you to study it. That the story of Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, and I feel like Hashem orchestrated the calendar this way, to slowly and in a soft way start to get us ready for Pesach already. We read these Parshios now to remind us, it's less than three months away. So, Sorry. <laughs> So, these are already divrei Torah for your Seder table. Look at it that way. Look at the positive. So, Islam Rebbe says, the story of Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, and it being a centerpiece of our religious experience, we mention it every day in Shema. It is one of the two major themes of Shabbos, Zecher Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. The whole episode in the mitzvah to recall every day leaving Egypt, the story is as much about trying to take Egypt out of us as it was taking us out of Egypt. Taking Egypt out of us as much as it was taking us out of Egypt. That's why it's twice. 
That's why it applies even if you weren't forced to work in the field. You were Moshe and Aaron, you came from Levi, Levi, you still had Sivlos at home because our homes were penetrated and were permeated with Egyptian values rather than Jewish ones. We had to be taken out of Egypt and to a certain degree we still need Egypt to be taken out of, out of us. And that's why it's only after Velakachti, it's only after Hashem takes us to Harsinai, Hashem, then So first is the promise of God says, first I'll liberate you from the physical bondage. I'll free you from the physical enslavement. But when we first left Egypt, before we got to Mount Sinai and received the Torah, we didn't have a worldview. We didn't have a prism through which to interpret and understand and inform our world known as the Torah. So perhaps we were liberated from the backbreaking labor of Egypt, but we were still Egyptians. We were Egyptian slaves trying to lose our slave mentality, but we were still Egyptians. When did we become Jews? At Harsinai. So the first stage wrote, Seisi, mitachas tivlos mitzrayim, is to be liberated from the backbreaking labor. But it's the second or the fourth stage when we came to Har Sinai, when we stood at Mount Sinai and we received the Torah that shaped and molded us to a new people, the first stage, Mitachas Sivlos Mitzrayim, was taking us out of Egypt. The Velakachti from Sivlos Mitzrayim was taking Egypt out of us. We can only successfully purge Egypt from us when it is replaced with Vidatem Kani Hashem Alokechem. When we stop worshipping the Nile, literally or metaphorically, when we stop chasing superstition, Rav Schechter a number of years ago gave a shir here about segulas and superstitions. And I remember he said that, you know, this, this pursuit of superstitions and fake skulas and thinking that, you know, you wear the red bendel or you recite this pittamaktoris from the cloth or you do this, you do that, shortcuts in Avodah Hashem Superstition, he said, was exactly the character trait of Egypt. Hashem took us out of Egypt. We're supposed to be the people who replaced silly superstition with vidatem kani Hashem, with emuna and bitachon that there is one Almighty God and He controls the world. And what do we do in our generation? We've done the switch back. We're replacing the Almighty God with the superstitions of Egypt. We're going back to Egypt. In fact, the Torah records in three places there's a prohibition to go back to Egypt. There's an Isser. It's recorded by the Gemara in three separate places based on three Psukim. That it's also to go back to Egypt. I once gave a whole Shabbos a Godel Drosha about it. How does it apply in our time? The Radvaz lived in Egypt. The Ravadia Yosef lived in Egypt. We've had great Poskim who lived in Egypt. Is it forbidden to live in Egypt? Is it permanent? Is it temporary? Is it only forbidden if you take the same route the Jewish people had gone? But if you get there some other route, it's a whole fascinating discussion. But what I suggested in that Shabbos Drush is that the prohibition to live in Egypt is not a geographic prohibition. It is an existential prohibition. It is a spiritual prohibition. Get your head out of Egypt. Get Egypt out of you. Enough with the superstition, the moral decay, the moral decadence, the licentiousness, the moral confusion and corruption. All of that was Egypt. So this story is the story of taking us out of Egypt, Sivlos Mitzrayim, and also taking Egypt out of us, by being at Harsinai. The Meshachachma says, the first of the Dal Deshanos of Geula corresponds with which cup at the Seder? Some of the cups are brand new cups. 
and we're drinking them to commemorate and to relive that experience. But that first cup actually corresponds with something we do every Friday night. And we do every Yantif. What is the first cup? Kiddush. The Meshachachmar of Meir Simcham Dvinsk says, because the first step of Geula is making Kiddush, is being Makadish yourself. How do you get Egypt out of you, not just you out of Egypt? By making Kiddush. Being Makadish yourself. Striving for sanctity. I saw another beautiful pshat. I'm probably going to write about it this week, so I reserve the right to write about it still. That, that word, Sivlos Mitzrayim, the same word, burden, is the same word we use. I just came from a trip to Israel. What's the word? Savlanut. No, Savlanut. What is Savlanut? Patience. So why is the same word for patience and burden or bondage? So first of all, when you're patient, a better translation for savlanut is not patience, but it's forbearing. When you're willing to endure, right? Patience demands enduring something uncomfortable. There's an element of being sovel in savlanut. You are, you are forbearing, you are enduring something uncomfortable in order to be patient. But there's something more going on here. You know what Hashem had to take us out of? Sivlos Mitzrayim. We were too patient with Mitzrayim. We were too accepting. We were too flexible. We were too patient. We had so assimilated because we had fear of, I don't know what, persecution, exclusion, that we were too patient with the culture of Egypt seeping into our own culture. We had too much patience. And we were afraid to draw a red line and to place boundaries and to say, this is not us. We're different. I don't want to say we're better in the sense of superior, but we're better than this corruption, than this moral decay, than this moral confusion. We're better than this. And we, I think there's a strong and powerful lesson for us that we don't need to be taken out of America because America is not enslaving us, thank God, it's providing the greatest freedom the Jewish people have ever known by any host country. But we got to get America a little bit more out of us. We have to have less civilos America, a little less patience in our adapting and absorbing and conforming to whatever the latest culture and moray and ethos is. We need less civilos and we need velakachti, v'yadatam keni Hashem, to remind ourselves that just like what redeemed them from Egypt was the name and their clothing and their language, all distinguishing characteristics to remember, I'm part of and apart from. I can be a proud Toshav, but I'm also a Ger. I'm a citizen and a stranger at the very, very same time. Okay, so that's Big Adol. That's just in the big sense that this story is a story of not only our leaving Egypt, but it's the story of God orchestrating things in a way to get Egypt out of us. And from, in fact, some of the Mephorshim explain, we're going to see the Kliyakar, hopefully, that sees it differently, but some of the Mephorshim explain that the pedagogic goal, the whole aim of the Makos, of the plagues, was it was a curriculum, it was an educational system. Which population, which demographic was being educated? So there's a legitimate debate here. Some say it was to educate the entire Egyptian population. Some say the Makos actually correspond exactly with Paro. Paro said, who's God? And who says he, can, he runs the world? To which God says, let me introduce myself. 
in 10 separate ways on my resume, 10 bullets. But there's another opinion which says that the Makos were not for the Egyptians and they were not for Paro because God's destiny was not intertwined with them, it was with us. We are the covenantal community. We are the ones who have a mission to be a microcosm for the world. And so the Eser Makos, the 10 plagues, were to take this, this slave nation with a very fatalistic and passive mentality and to say there's a God who runs the world and nothing is beyond his power. So even the Makos themselves were a curriculum in replacing being an Egyptian with I'm trying to get Egypt out of you and to turn you into Jews, to turn you into Yidin. Okay. Now Moshe's role, very interestingly, if you contrast it with Avram, is very different. Rabbi Salavechik and writes, Hashem references Moshe. I know you think that I don't know what I'm doing. Trust me. I made the promise to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, your forefathers. I have as much sympathy. I hear Na'akas B'nai Yisrael. I, I have a plan here. There's four stages. I got this. I got this. Just stick with me. So the Rav writes, the story of Moshe is diametrically opposed to that of Avram. While the father of the nation voluntarily undertakes a historical mission, without experiencing any duress or compulsion, the Redeemer is forced by apocalyptic command into a historical situation. He did not discover God, nor did he select him or the moral law. Moshe himself was a child of a period when fulfillment of the covenant seemed impossible. The apocalyptic revelation surprised him and took him prisoner. He encountered apocalyptic necessity. Hashem commanded and he tried to resist without success. What kind of compulsion did Hashem use? Of course not his cosmic power. He did not apply force to Moshe. He introduced himself not as the autocrat of the universe, but as the God of Moshe's fathers, as the God of the covenant. The necessity which Moshe encounters was of historical nature, the historical need. I think a very interesting insight. Hashem doesn't, first of all, the contrast of Avram and Moshe. Avram discovers God, God imposes himself on Moshe. Avram volunteers to be this leader, to stand on a soapbox, to missionize about ethical monotheism, and Moshe has to be pulled, struggling, Moshe says, I'm not the man, try someone else, I'm telling you I'm not cut out for this. So it's very fascinating, the contrast in Moshe and Avram. But when Hashem has to convince Moshe, says the Rav, he doesn't coerce him. He doesn't say, look, I can prove some things with your staff turning into a snake, I run the whole world, do it or I'm going to destroy you and your family. Hashem could have said that, he does not resort to that. What does he do? What's the most compelling, persuasive argument Hashem could offer? You owe it to your forefathers. I made them a promise and they made me a promise. You're part of a covenantal community. You're a link in a chain and you have an obligation to this mission. You're part of this mission. I think that too is instructive in how we do outreach and also how we do inreach to our own children and grandchildren. It's not about coercion. If you don't this, I leave you out of the will. If you don't this, you don't get to come on the family cruise. If you don't that, no birthday or Hanukkah present for you. If you it's not through guilt. It's not through punishment. It's through by communicating and uplifting and inspiring, you're a link in a chain. There's an entire world that comes before you, our family, our family narrative. They sacrificed selflessly for you. And you owe it. You have to pay that forward to the next generation. Because if you don't, if you're a break in that chain, it can't continue. It's a different approach. And I think the way Hashem recruits Moshe is an excellent model for all of us in how we approach these things. The Rav also... 
I'll just, uh, again, this is our overview. We're still in the first few psukim. Hashem says the fourth stage, the Harsinai stage, which is the culmination, the fulfillment of why He took us out. He didn't take us out of Egypt to just be some other secular nation. He didn't put us in Uganda. He took us out for Vilakakhti. Pesach without Shavuos is not a holiday. Pesach is only meaningful when you count the 49 days in between that link it to Shavuos. The Ramban writes, Pesach is the first days of the Yantif, Shavuos is the last day of the Yantif. That's why both Shavuos and Shmini Atzeres are called Atzeres. And Sfiras HaOmer is the Cholamoi that joins them to be one long holiday. Why? Because Pesach without Shavuos is nothing. We're not just celebrating being freed. We're freed so that 49 days later we can stand at the base of a mountain and convert and become a covenantal community with a mission and a purpose. That's who we are. That's Vilakachti. So when Hashem says Vilakachti, He says, Vilakachti Yashem Li La'am. I'm taking you to be an Am. And the Rav says, this is so interesting, I can't believe I never heard this or thought of this before. The word Am, nation, is identical to the Hebrew word Im, with. Our fate of unity manifests itself through a historical indispensable union. We are unique not only in our way of life, but in our historical transmigrations and our paradoxical fate. Our fate is incomprehensible. The enigma of our existence is primarily revealed through our loneliness and our affliction in all times, the current era included. We are an Am Levadad Yishkom. He writes, The state of Israel did not ignore this unique fate. Quite the contrary, it's given expression to it in a more concrete fashion. No Jew can renounce his part of the unity, which is based upon a fate of loneliness of the Jewish people as a nation. Religious Jews or irreligious Jews are all included in one nation, which stands lonesome and in misery in a large and often antagonistic world. When faced with a problem regarding the defense of Jewish rights in the non-Jewish world, all groups and movements must be united. There may not be any division in this area, because any friction in the Jewish camp may be disastrous for the entire people. In the crematoria, the ashes of the Hasidim and the pious Jews were put together with the ashes of the radicals and the atheists. And we must all fight the enemy, who does not differentiate between those who believe in God and those who reject Him. So to be an Am is to be able to live Im. I never thought of that. It's so beautiful. What does it mean to be an Am, to be a nation? Is to be Im. Is to be able to live with, connected with others. That's what I wrote about this past week. Not a pluralistic notion of unity that there's more than one truth. My truth and your truth and Kumbaya. No, I believe my truth and I believe it to the exclusion of your truth. I think that your truth is a lie. It's not a truth. But now what? How do we live side by side? How do we connect? How are we an Am living in one another? Even if we hold separate truths dearly and with conviction. How? To be an Am, you have to be able to live in. Such a beautiful, beautiful image. Okay. Wait, there was so much more, but we'll, we'll save it for next year and the introduction. <laughs> The role of Shabbos, the Medrash says, Jewish people are only redeemed because of Shabbos. And the Medrash tells the story that Moshe saw they had no peace, they had no serenity, so he went to Paro, even in the midst of the bondage, and said, listen, while we're negotiating the release, give them one day off. They have to have one day off. And it'll be counterproductive for you because if you don't give them one day off, they're going to burn out. They can't build pyramids, they can't build bricks. And he negotiated Shabbos. The Medrash says it's only in the merit of Shabbos they were redeemed. What does that even mean? In the merit of Shabbos they survived. But why would in the merit of Shabbos they be redeemed? And what does that have to do with us in our time? I'll give you a hint. 
the, the opposite of Shabbos, etzem ha-golos, he histaltas hadas. Golos, exile, bondage, is when you don't have clarity to think. When you don't have das. When you're unable to have autonomy and perspective. When you have no optimism and hope. When you have no space to think and to feel. That's golos. So now you understand why Shabbos might be the antidote. But again, we'll have to leave that for another time. So let's keep going. So Hashem says, okay, nu, bo daber paro. Interesting, Hashem doesn't say lech daber paro. What does He say? Bo, go speak to Para. And tell him to send the people. And Moshe says, I can't. They don't listen to me. He's not going to listen to me. This is an exercise in futility. I'm out. And Hashem says to him, no. Not only go and have a commandment for Paro, but I want you to command the Jewish people and Paro. We say this every year. I understand why Paro needs to be commanded. He is the one holding them prison. Why do you have to command the people themselves? Imagine you have hostages and you have to tell them. I command you to go, to go home. Why do you command me? Of course I'm going home. What else am I doing? I've been suffering as a hostage. I'm ready to go home. Nobody had to command Rabashkin, you're commanded to leave jail. The moment he was allowed to leave, he got up and he left. So what do you mean Vaitzavim? What do you have to be commanded? So all the Mephorshim explain, and this ties into, Moshe says, they're not listening to me. Why? They can't hear me. And why can't they hear me? I say every single year. The Orachayim Rashi, most Mephorshim understand, means shortness of breath. They're exhausted. You know, when you've had no sleep, when you're exhausted, you can't even catch your breath, then you're not going to listen. Don't make me promises about a brighter future. I can't even catch my breath. I don't have a second to think. I don't have time to talk to you. I have to get back to my job. I can't even eat my sandwich, my matzah. But the Yorachayim says, no, kotzer ruach doesn't refer to shortness of breath. Ruach means spirit. And kotzer ruach means they were so fatalistic. They thought, you know what, this is me. This is my reality. It just can't get better. It won't get better. It doesn't get better. Leave me alone. They gave up. They didn't believe there was a brighter future. And Moshe had to convince not only Paro to let them go, Moshe had to convince themselves that they deserve better, they're capable of better, and they should let go of the image that they're a slave nation and it can never change. He had to say to Paro, let my people go, and he had to say to the people, let my people go. Because otherwise they wouldn't listen. And then the Torah tells us the mission who was in charge, the people from the different tribes. And at the end of the whole list, it says, Who Aaron and Moshe? This was Aaron and Moshe. They're the ones who communicated to Paro, the king of Egypt, to let the Jews out. Who Moshe and Aaron? That is Moshe and Aaron. I'm on page 322. What do you mean? This is Aaron and Moshe. Oh, you know, the ones who went to speak to Paro and demand that the people be like, oh, that is Moshe and Aaron. What's with the redundancy? There's two questions. A, what's with the redundancy? And B, what's with the change of, of the order? So Rabbi Salavechik deals with this in his Chumash. And he says, I love the paradigm, the imagery that he draws. He says, in this Pasuk, Aaron is mentioned before Moshe, and in the other Pasuk, Moshe's name is first. And Rashi says to teach us, we're going to come back to this in a moment, 
that they were shkulin, that they were equal. Moshe and Aaron were equal. We'll come back to that. Says the Rav, a pattern of dual leadership seems to have prevailed during major periods of Jewish history. It began with Moshe and Aaron and is exemplified today through the Rav and the Hasidish Rebbe, the Rosh Hashiva and the Rebbe. Moshe was the teacher par excellence. He was not called a king, he was Moshe Rabbeinu, not Moshe Malkeinu, although he undoubtedly exercised royal authority. The Pasuk says, and the king, Moshe, ruled in Yerushim. In Yerushim. Aaron, who served alongside Moshe, was not only a Kohen Gadol, he was a teacher. In describing the Kohanit role, the prophet Malachi declared that, what's the Pasuk? Sifsei Kohen Yishmu Das Tori Yivakshu so you see that a Kohen, Tori of Aksham the Kohen is a teacher. Both Moshe and Aaron were teachers, writes the Rav. Their methods and their temperaments differed. The two major traditions of Torah teaching may be called that of the king, the Malchus teacher, and that of the saint, the Kedusha teacher. Moshe was the prototype of the king teacher. Aaron represented the saint teacher. Both of them enlightened minds, molded characters, and propagated the word of Hashem. Both led their communities along righteous paths and made sacrifices for their welfare. Nevertheless, their methods, their approaches, the media with it they employed were different. In terms of ultimate objectives, they were very close, but their emphases varied. The king teacher addressed himself to the mind. He engages the intellect, analyzing, classifying, clarifying, transmitting the details of Allah with precision. He teaches texts and conceptualized thinking, reconciling seeming contradictions, formulating underlying principles. Moshe, the Rambam, the Vilnagon. Who do you think he had next on the list thereof? Reb Chaim, his grandfather, reflect the king teacher par excellence. The Kadusha teacher, the saint teacher, even as he deals with the text, focuses attention on the invisible, intangible soul of the Torah. The Torah, like a human being, has according to the Zohar, both a physical body, a thought system, and a moral religious code, a soul, an overflowing inward life that can be felt but not understood. To feel the mysterious heartbeat of the Torah, one has to identify with it. The soul of man, his experiences must somehow be attuned to the soul of the Torah. The saint teacher communicates with his heart. He tells the heart how to identify its own excited, accelerated beat with the Torah, to feel, not only to understand. He teaches man both loyalty to halacha and the art of cleansing the heart of vulgarity, inhumanity, unworthy sentiments, uncouth emotions, and selfish desires. He teaches how a triumph is to be celebrated when the Almighty has granted success and how to cope with sadness and grief. The saint teacher creates a society of intense personal piety and subliminal closeness to Hashem. In the ecstatic and passionate love of Hashem, it is the heart, not the mind, which predominates. Prayer more than study is the primary emphasis of the saint teacher. The emotional represents the yearning of the soul to return to its origin. Man seeks to root himself in the source. The saint teacher responds to this craving of the human soul. The king teacher speaks to a select few, for not all are capable of being scholars. Not everyone is qualified to understand an abstract halachic or scientific concept, let alone contribute to it. He must be content with a limited group. The masses feel despondent at being excluded. The saint teacher is a leader of the masses. All Jews have hearts which can be set aflame. All Jews possess sensitive souls and seek God. Hasidim, t- Hasidism teaches that every Jew, even the non-scholar, is capable of finding Hashem if he seeks earnestly. This assurance is given to all Jews, not only the learned few. Hence, the teaching of the saint teacher is democratic, comprehensible, accessible. He presides over an accessible court. Moshe was a model of the Rav, the Rosh Hashiva. Aaron of the Rebbe. Moshe was kvad peh, a nonverbal person, not given to small talk, easy socializing, and extensive negotiations. He was Rabbeinu, a scholar, teacher, uniquely spiritually endowed, who communicated tersely what he had to say. He was a teacher primarily to Yehoshua and to the Zikanim, to others who were qualified to understand. For a priest's lips, 
emphasizes Aaron's lips, his persuasive style, closeness to the people. Aaron's title was not Rabbeinu, but Hakohen, which signifies a minister of Hashem. Nowadays, the Rav, the contemporary teacher king, has absorbed many of the qualities of the Rebbe, not only teaching, but coming close to his people. The Rebbe, representing the modern teacher, also emphasizes scholarship and the teaching role. The classic differences are still there, but the lines of demarcation are at times blurred. Jewish leadership is most effective when it combines the mind and the heart in the worship of Hashem. It's fascinating how the Rav is taking his own autobiography of being exposed to his uh, Chabad Rebbe and Chaslavich and Tanya and the, the Hasidism which the, which the Rav held very dear and continued to study his whole life. And on the other hand, his father, Reb Moshe Salavechik, his grandfather, Reb Chaim, the Beis Alevi, and he takes that own experience and reads it into Moshe and Aaron. Moshe is the Rosh Hashiva, the Chakiras, the Lamdas, the brilliance, inaccessible to the masses, socially uncomfortable. And Aaron is the Rebbe, is beloved by everybody. Oiv Shalom, Rodev Shalom, he's the beloved of the, the man of the people. He's the spiritual guide. There, I thought that was a very, very fascinating. And that's what he's describing when the Torah says that, that they're equal. Who Moshe Aaron? who Aaron the Moshe. But a few more words about this. And at some point, either we stop calling it an overview or we get into the other parts of the Pasha. One way or the other. So, another way to understand this is, Rashi says, right, if you look at Rashi, who Aaron the Moshe? Sometimes the Torah first lists Aaron. Sometimes the Torah first lists Moshe. And why does it do that? In order to tell us that they're equal. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. But first, why the redundancy? Why the redundancy? So the Sefer Bermayim Chaim suggests that this text, the Torah, is trying to testify that despite Moshe and Aaron ascending to these prominent, prestigious positions, despite the thrill of acting as the Rebona Shalom's direct agents in confronting the most powerful human on earth in his palace, right? these two lowly brothers who were raised humbly have now emerged to be on the largest stage of history. And even though that could have gone to their heads, who Moshe Aaron? they're still the same people. It never got to their head. It never inflated their ego. They never thought more of themselves. They remained the same humble people who just saw themselves as having a mission. They never confused the mission with who they were. They took what they did seriously. They never took who they were too seriously. And that's what the Torah is communicating. It says the Bermayim Chaim, who Moshe Aaron, who Aaron Moshe. The same way they were growing up is the same way they were now. They never lost their humility. But what's troubling with Rashi is, it's difficult to say, The Torah itself testifies, Nobody ever paralleled or equaled Moshe. One of the Yud Gimel, one of the 13 principles of our faith, for the Rambam, is to see Moshe as the Av the father of prophecy, categorically different than all other men, all other humanity. So how can we possibly say shkulin ke'echad? Why does the Torah sometimes have this order and sometimes that order? To tell us they're equal. How could you suggest they're equal? They're absolutely not equal. Moshe is far greater. What is the Torah trying to tell us? So the great Rebbe, Rabsim Simcha Bunim, Rabshischa, 
says, in order to answer the question, you have to look at the context of the Pesukim. Such a great insight. First it tells us who Aaron and Moshe, they were Aaron and Moshe, who went where? Asher hotzios b'nei Yisrael me'eretz mitzrayim atziv osam. Heima medabrim aparo, lotzios b'nei Yisrael, hu Moshe va'aron. One Pasuk says they were Aaron and Moshe, Pasuk Havav, I'm on page 322, chapter 6, verse 26. They were Aaron and Moshe, who told them, Hotzias B'nei Yisrael. Who's the them? Think back to our vort about Vayetzavim. Told the people themselves, let yourselves go, believe in a brighter future. Bring about your brighter future. And then it says, they were the ones who spoke to Paro, they were Moshe and Aaron. Says the Rebbe of Simchabunim that one messenger can't deliver the same message to all audiences. There are different messages for different audiences and they demand different messengers. To be effective and to get results, you have to taper the message to the intended audience. The Jewish people have been in servitude for centuries. They've suffered, they've been persecuted, they've been oppressed, they've become embittered and disaffected and disillusioned. Do you think they were open to hearing a message from Moshe? Why would they have hesitated? What would have been the obstacle to hear the message from Moshe? Why would Moshe not have been the best messenger to come to them and say, Hey guys, why are you so down? Why are you so despondent? Why are you so pessimistic? I'm telling you, trust me, come with me. I'm taking you out. You have a brighter future. Why might they have rejected that message from Moshe? Where did Moshe grow up? He couldn't identify with their 210 years of suffering. He grew up in the palace. And he's been living in the security of Midian. And now you're going to come here and tell us how to feel and what to think? You're going to give us a Musa Shmuz? You're going to rebuke us? Don't be so down. Where's your optimism? Where's your hope? You have no idea what it's like to wake up every day and be beaten and lose your loved ones and be tortured. Yeah, after 210 years, that'll take away your sense of hope. Who is the one who can give them that message? Only? Only an Aaron. Aaron had suffered with them. He had experienced and seen the bondage firsthand. He shared their pain in the most profound way. He was patient, and he was gentle, and he was loving. He was soothing and comforting. He had credibility with them. Only he could do it. So who Aaron Vemosha? This message, Aaron comes first. He was the one to deliver it. But now what about the next message? The next pasuk is, Hema midabrim al-paro melech mitzrayim to march into the palace and walk right up to the throne and put your finger in the face of the most powerful man on earth and demand, let my people go. Could Aaron have done that? Having been persecuted and suffering himself, having this slave passive mentality, that demanded who? Moshe. Moshe. Someone who grew up in that palace, who felt like royalty who felt entitled to put his finger in the face of the king and say, I grew up in this palace. Your daughter was my surrogate mother. I grew up here. I know what you look like behind the scenes, off camera. And I'm telling you, let my people go. And says Rav Simcha that's why, for this passage it concludes, who? Moshe Va'aron. This was a message only Moshe could deliver. And with this, Rav Simcha explains what Rashi means. Loma means they were equal as one. Not that they were equal as people. Lokam kamosha, nobody ever was as great as Moshe. But what does it mean? Shkulun means 
that both of the messages are important. Sometimes a message has to be delivered gently with kindness by a friend or a peer, a message of hope or optimism, a vision of what could be, an Aram type of message. And sometimes it has to be a Moshe, demanding. Sometimes you have to walk in with confidence. Sometimes you have to come in protest. Sometimes you have to come in with authority. Sometimes you have to come in with expectation of Moshe. Shkulun ke'echad, says Rav Simcha Bunim is not talking about the people, Moshe and Aaron. It's talking about the messages and the messaging different situations demand. Also very important in parenting and in education. Sometimes you've got to be strict and you've got to be strong and you've got to be in a position of authority. Sometimes you have to have empathy and be a friend and gentle and paint a picture of hope and of optimism. Different messages and different messaging for different audiences, and also sometimes delivered by different people. Not everyone who could deliver one message can deliver the other. And that's the message of this, says Rav Simcha Bunim. That's what's going on over here. But Moshe Feinstein has a different interpretation. He shared the Rav, Rav Simcha Bunim, and now I'll tell you what Rav Moshe, in Drash Moshe, Rav Moshe says another. I love this image that Rav Moshe paints. Rav Moshe says, he quotes Rashi, who says, How could you say Aaron can compete with Moshe? Moshe's Rabbeinu gave us the Torah. He's the Avan Avim. And listen to what Rabbi Moshe says. You know, it doesn't matter if you have a senior partner and a junior partner. If it couldn't get done without the junior partner, they're equal. You understand? Since Aaron was deemed the necessary part of this mission, even if Aaron is the senior partner in the mission, if the mission is incomplete without the junior partner, they're equal in the sense that the mission needs both of them. But Ramosha's second shot is the one that really speaks to me. Says Ramosha. True, Moshe Rabbeinu is greater than Aaron. It's not an insult to Aaron. Moshe Rabbeinu is greater than every human being that ever lived or will live on earth. So what do you mean, shkulun ke'echad? That they're equal means that each fulfilled their mission on earth. Moshe's job was to be Moshe and Aaron's job was to be Aaron. But when Aaron is an Aaron, he's equal to Moshe who's fulfilling his mission to be Moshe. Because after all, who gave Moshe the capacity and capability to be Moshe? Who endowed him with that potential, those skills, that capacity? It's Hashem. So the Ger Rebbe says, you know, Hashem gives us talents and skills. When we use them, we're simply fulfilling our mission, our shlichus. When we neglect them, we're stealing from the Almighty. He didn't give us these talents and skills and blessings just to pursue our own happiness, hedonistic pleasure. He gave it to fulfill a mission, a shlichus. That's the language the Torah here uses. Hashem sends Moshe and Aaron on shlichus. Vayishalchein, vayishalach, boa paro. The Gemara has the principle, shliach shaladim kemoso. When you send a shliach, the ambassador, the emissary is on your behalf. We are Hashem's agents, His angels here on earth, doing a mission to advance the world according to His plan. Each of us have our own mission. Each of us have our own unique role to play. When we play it fully, were as great as Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe may objectively be greater than Aaron, but says 
Rabbi Moshe, Shkul and Ke'echad means they were equal in that when people fulfilled their potential and lived the best version of themselves, they achieved the greatness as much as anyone. That's the Rebbe of Zusha. He used to say, he was crying on his deathbed, and his Hasidim said, why are you crying? And he said, I'm crying because when I come upstairs, you know, they're not going to ask me, why weren't you Avram or Yitzhak and Yaakov? Why weren't you Moshe Rabbeinu or Bikiva Eger? Why weren't you the Rav or the Rebbe? They're going to ask me, why weren't you Reb Zusha? And that's the question. Shkulun ke'echad. We're not to measure ourselves against others. Aaron didn't spend his life measuring himself against Moshe. There are people that if we measure ourselves against them, we cannot compete. There are people who can't compete with us, but there are people against whom we cannot compete. But we're making a mistake. The measure, the metric is not against others. The metric or measure is against ourselves. What are we capable of? What's our capacity? What's our potential? Because if we reach it, if we fulfill it, shkulun ke'echad. We're as great as Moshe Rabbeinu, who simply fulfilled his potential. The objective, the measure against we measure ourselves is our potential, not against any other people. Okay. The redemption begins. <clears throat> Moshe and Aaron come and make this demand of Paro. They have this uh, interaction. Then we have the first plague, which is blood. We'll come back to. Second plague, frogs. It's an amazing thing Rashi tells us about the plague of Tzvardea. What happened if you hit the Tzvardea? It multiplied. It was like a gremlin. If you hit it, there were two. If you hit them, you got four. They multiplied. So the stipler gone and his birchas parrots asks a great question. So what Rashi is quoting Chazal is telling us is that plague was brought on by the Egyptians themselves. Hashem deposited a few miscellaneous frogs but they tried to trap and kill and hit the frogs, and when they did, they multiplied. And they kept doing it to the point that it became a plague. Frogs here, frogs there. Frogs were crawling everywhere. As the great Maimar Chazal says. So, ask the stipler, I don't understand. Okay, it's understandable the first time you hit the frog, you're trying to get rid of the frog. But when you saw that when you hit the frog the first time, it turns into two frogs. Okay, maybe you thought that it was an aberration. It was some fluke. So you hit them again. Now your two turned into four. When you hit the two and they turned into four, wouldn't you stop hitting the frogs? Wouldn't you leave it? You can live with four frogs. You can't live with four million frogs. So when it turns into four frogs, just genuk, stop hitting the frogs. It's enough. Ask the stipend of the birchah's parents, why do you keep hitting the frogs? He has an incredible insight into the human psyche. He says, this is the midah of kas. This is what happens with anger. When we get angry, it clouds our judgment and we act in self-destructive ways. A person who lashes out with rage or anger hurts the relationship with their spouse or their children, blows the business opportunity or business deal or the negotiation that could have yielded them a lot of money, ruins their own lives, sabotages their own success. Science, by the way, is consistent with this. When a person gets angry, the blood flows in the brain to the animal part of the brain and leaves the human part of the brain. We go to a place of fight or flight. We're no longer in a place of thoughtful, intentional behavior. When we allow ourselves to succumb to anger, we act self-destructively. And you see that because the Egyptians got angry. How could these two turn into four frogs? 
Next thing you know, there's four million frogs is a plague. I, moron, just stop hitting the frogs. The answer is, when you get angry, you become a moron. You're a moron. If anyone would ever, you'd probably, you'd probably punch them. But if anyone ever took a video of you when you were flying off the handle, you were yelling in rage, you were overreacting, you were screaming, you were losing your cool. If someone took a video of you and you watched it, you wouldn't recognize it. You would deny it's you, you'd say there's some video uh, trick. They, um, fake news, it's fake news, right? It's fake news. Because when a person loses their cool, when we become enraged, we lose our humanity, we lose our identity. We don't even recognize, we become unrecognizable even to ourselves, and we sabotage our own success. That's why both for the Rambam and Hilchos Deus, and for the Ramban, Nigeras HaRamban, one of the things the Ramban and Rambam both agree on, is that all, the, all character traits belong in our repertoire to a degree, to a measure, that's why they're called the Mida. There should be a measure of every character trait. There are two character traits that don't belong at all. And one of them is anger. A person has to be exceedingly calm. A person has to go to the extreme to not get angry. Kas is categorically bad. Kas is categorically wrong. Why? Because you forfeit your humanity. You become a moron. You lose your senses. And you act in a self-destructive, unintellectual way. And that's the maka of Tzvardeya. The third plague is lice. Fourth plague, of course, are the beasts. There's different Torah within every one of these. The fifth plague is Dever. The sixth plague, Shechin. Seventh plague, Barad. Who did the Barad affect? So here's an interesting Pasuk. I'll tell you the Torah at least on the seventh one. And then we'll skip from the second to the seventh. Pasuk Laman Aleph. Vapishta vasaura nukasak yasaura aviv vapishta give all. What happened with this maka? The hail fell on the crops. And were all the crops affected the same? No. The Pasuk here testifies. The flax and the barley were struck. Why? Because the barley was ripe. And the flax was in its stalk. And the wheat and the spelt were not struck. Why? Because they only ripen later. So that which was ripe and stiff, that was struck by the hail, it fell, it was ruined. But that which was unripened and was flexible sustained the hail and it survived. It bent, it was soft, the hard hail fell on it and fell right off of it and didn't break it. Why am I raising this? Because the Bali Musa point out here in this Pasuk, the Chazal say it often, A person should always be soft like a reed and not stiff like a cedar. In life, when you're stiff-necked, when you're stubborn, when you're rigid, when you're inflexible, then hail or a strong wind will knock you right over. But if you're flexible and you show the ability to adapt to other people's opinions, to different circumstances and situations, to things that might disappoint you, if you're flexible, you're soft and you can adapt, then you can withstand even a strong plague, even the hail, even the wind. I always say this with the hurricane. 
that the palm trees are standing and the ficus trees fell over. For two reasons. Ficus is stiff and the palm tree is soft. And the ficus has very shallow roots. You'll see that the ficus trees that flew over, the shallow roots all fell up like it. The palm tree has deep roots. If you want to be able to withstand the winds and the plagues, the hail that life throws our way, then you need two things. You have to have deep roots to know where you come from. You have to know what matters. You have to have strong values. And you have to be flexible. Because you see, the Torah goes out of its way. It's like such an unnecessary point. Who cares? Seventh plague was hail. It affected the crops. Weiter. Next, Paro says, please make it stop. Made it stop till the eighth plague. What do we get into this whole agricultural observation? Oh, the flax and the barley fell. The wheat and the spelt, they made it. Who cares? Why is that historically relevant? Why is it hashkafically relevant? The answer is, Chazal say, it's yet another reminder. When you're stiff, you get knocked over. When you're flexible, then you're able to withstand, you're able to withstand in life. Okay, we're ready to start. That's an overview of the parsha. That's our overview of the parsha. Okay, we're not going to get to what I wanted to get to. So I'll just say one more thought. We'll close with that, and then all the things I prepared for this year, I'm already ready for next year. Parsha's Vayera. Baruch Hashem. These parshas are too rich. It's too much. So I'll just tell you one other thing. I wanted to talk about, we were going to get into the Pesukim where we left off last year, are about Hashem hardening Paro's heart. What does that mean? Free will versus determinism. What does it mean Hashem hardened Paro's heart? That's playing, that's not playing fairly. Why would he do that? Why did the Rebona Shalom orchestrate things in a way to bring the plagues? Hashem could have just blinked. We'd be in Israel. Hashem is almighty, nothing is beyond him. Nothing is beneath him. 210 years of slavery, Hashem decides we're supposed to be free. Could have snapped his fingers and we'd be free. Why the pomp and circumstance, the stage, the big show? Not one, not two, not three, ten plagues. It's not coincidence, it's by design. Hashem himself tells us the reason why. And we'll get into all of that next year. But I want to close by telling you one more thing. Uh, I shared with you a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago, this amazing new book by Dr. Henry Abramson. He used to be here in South Florida, now he's in New York, he's one of the deans of Turo. And he put out this incredible book about the Piazetzna Rebbe's Eish Kodesh, you remember? Yeah. The great Piazetzna Rebbe, of Kalanimus Kalman Shapiro of Piazetzna, who was a Rebbe in Piazetzna, was the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto, died in the Chaniki slave labor camp, was murdered by the Nazis, an incredible individual, wrote many works, Piaz Etznareb is one of my heroes. Absolutely incredible, incredible. His Torah really resonates for me. So we had his Eish Kodesh in the Onig Shabbos archives. Ringo Bloom had hidden the scraps of paper on which the Piaz Etznareb had given his drushes in the Warsaw Ghetto. He didn't give it a name, Eish Kodesh. We did afterwards. They were retreated, retrieved. They were published in the early 1950s as the sermons of the Warsaw Ghetto, Eish Kodesh, Holy Fire. Rav Moshe Weinberger in Woodmere named Teshul Eish Kodesh for the Piazetz Nerebbe, for these drushes. So until now we only had that edition. In Eretz Yisrael, a scholar has worked on a more accurate edition because the Rebbe made emendations on the notes of his drushes. He wasn't the early one to write it out. It was one of his Hasidim. 
he made notes, now they were incorporated. Henry Abenson's contribution, and I highly recommend his new book, that's name escapes me at the moment, but Henry Abenson's contribution is, in Eish Kodesh, the Rebbe, which has been translated into English, by the way, Holy Fire, the Rebbe doesn't talk about the Nazis, the concentration camp, the ghetto, the persecution, the gas chamber. He's giving drushes in the late 1930s, early 1940, he's giving drushes in the Warsaw Ghetto when they know what's happening. And he's not referring explicitly to what's going on around them. So what Dr. Abramson did, that's a great contribution, is he wrote this book where he takes the Rebbe's drusha, but he provides the historical context of exactly what was happening at that moment. So I want to end by telling you about the drusha the Rebbe gave on Parshas Va'era, January 6, 1940. The worst was still far off. The Nazis had replaced the leadership of the Jewish council with their appointees. The wearing of the mandatory Jewish badge was imposed. The horrific mass arrest and execution of Jews living in the ghetto had happened, but the walls had not yet been constructed. Jews still enjoyed freedom of movement. Economic activity was beginning to feel the pressure of the occupation, as Ringelblum records in his diary. I'm going to skip the part of Ringelblum's diary because we're out of time. But Abramson includes it again because it gives this historical context. The Rebbe's message for Vaira of that year, 1940, 5-7-0-0, was directed to the Jewish leaders, maybe to the Jewish council, the Yudenrat, perhaps even to himself. The Rebbe drew a parallel to the leadership of Moshe during the oppressive era of Paro. This is what the Rebbe writes. The Jews did not listen to Moshe out of Kotzer Ruach and Avu Dakasha, shortness of breath and difficult labor. And Moshe said, if they don't listen to me, how's Paro going to listen? Rashi explains... Hashem commanded that Moshe and Aaron lead the Jewish people gently and be patient with them, with savlanut. How is it relevant? The Jewish people would not listen to the oppression of Paro. Why does this require Moshe and Aaron to lead them gently? Of what benefit would calm leadership be if Paro continued to torture them? Chas v'shalom. That was the Rebbe's question. You understand the significance of that question now in that context and at that time? The Judenrat, the leadership of the ghetto, has been replaced by Nazi appointees. There's Jews leading other Jews, the Moshe and Aaron, so to say, while there's the Paro, the Nazis, who are persecuting and oppressing. And the Rebbe, the Piazetzner Rebbe, is interpreting the Psukim through the prism of what they're living. And he's asking, who cares if the Judenrat is calm with us if the Nazis are continuing to, to destroy us, to exterminate us? Why is Hashem telling Moshe and Aaron, have patience with the people? They're not the ones causing the suffering of the people, it's Paro. That's the Rebbe's question. And the Rebbe answered, We pray that Hashem provide us with chen, chesed, verachamim, grace, kindness, and mercy. First chen, grace, then kindness, chesed, then rachamim. This is because grace is invoked for one who is, heaven forbid, not deserving of rescue. As we learn from the Pasuk, Noach matzah chen, meaning that even Noah was not deserving of rescue, yet he found grace. Chesed, kindness, is understood as complete kindness, is also given to the undeserving. It's only mercy that is intermixed with divine justice. Mercy, mercy is neither the full measure of divine justice nor divine kindness. One who is undeserving rather is intended for one who is somewhat deserving, hence mercy. And then the Rebbe shifted the discussion from an, an appeal to the Jewish leadership to a prayer for divine forbearance for the weak. Jewish observance and the commandments. Just as the Jews of Moshe's time were unable to respond adequately to the call for redemption, so to the situation of the Jews of Warsaw. And here's how the Rebbe continued and ends the drasha. This is why our prayers read in this specific order. 
It goes without saying that it's impossible to approach divine justice itself amidst suffering and affliction when we are not fulfilling that which is incumbent upon us. Amidst suffering and affliction, we are not only unfit to approach divine justice and to be vindicated, it's even impossible for us to approach divine mercy, which requires us to be somewhat worthy. In other words, he's turning it on to the residents of the ghetto themselves and saying, we're not worthy of chayn, I'm sorry, we're not worthy of rachamim or even chesed, maybe chayn, for the undeserving. We ask that we first be granted grace and kindness, so even though we're not worthy, Hashem may save us, and then we'll be able to approach divine mercy, for we will be at least somewhat worthy. It is not merely the affliction that makes it difficult for us to study Torah and do all that's incumbent upon us. Even that which we do manage to accomplish is performed without spirit and vitality, but rather with a broken heart and depressed and without joy. May the merciful one rescue us. As a consequence of the intensity of Egyptian enslavement, it was essential the Jewish people first attain freedom. So he's saying, we can't have the joy and the vitality, even in that which we can observe. First we need physical freedom, and then we can inject that vitality, and then we become worthy, not just of chayn, of chesed, but please God, of, of rachamim. So the Rebbe doesn't mention anything about where they are or what's happening. He couches it as if he's talking about Moshe and Aaron and Paro, chayn and chesed and rachamim, slavery, freedom, but really he's trying to give a message of hope and chizek to the people right in front of him, really something which is extraordinary. Mitzvah Shem will continue next week. Have a great week.